Hello and welcome to Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee, part 9, with me, Eason. And me, Bex. And we've made it all the way back down the trail from Listening Post Alpha. It was lovely to meet the Bex up there. But now, after the brief hiatus, Twin Peaks is back, and so are we. Yes, so I think we're ready to rock to part 9, This is the Chair. Ooh. <laughs> and... Big thanks to everyone who listened to Listening Post Alpha. We had a really good time making it, and uh, I think it's been our most downloaded episode ever. So hopefully other people are enjoying it too. Yeah, so thanks to everyone listening and for sharing and retweeting our episodes, and especially for Listening Post Alpha, thanks to Lindsay and Aiden at Bickering Peaks. Hmm. So should we crack on? Yeah, before we do, I just wanted to point out that in case anyone listening hasn't heard yet, um, there is a blog that is referenced on the show that has actually been put online properly. And we're going to talk about that quite a bit at the end, I think, because there's lots to talk about on that. But we're going to cover it after we've covered the episode. Yeah, so we're going to uh, go into the zone later on. Mm. <laughs> and so you may actually want to have a bit of a peruse of that or maybe listen to the episode and then have a bit of a peruse. And hopefully, because we've already seen parts of it are being taken down or getting harder to find. Yeah, try and have a look around, see what's in there. And we think we found some interesting things that might kind of tie in potentially to the mythology of what's going on. But then that's also a good time also to point out that I think uh, this episode also killed off most of our theories that we originally had. <laughs> so yeah, uh, thanks for listening. We could probably only say that what you're listening to is probably uh, complete bollocks. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's fun for us to record and we hope it's fun for you to listen to. Yeah, so should we crack on with part nine? Let's do it. So we open back with uh, Mr. C again, but it's the, it seems to be the following morning and a very kind of bloodied and beaten Mr. C is walking down this country road. And it's very short, this scene. We can't really tell at this point if he's bobless or not, but he kind of gives off the air of being just doppelganger. What do you think? Yeah, I think he seems... I mean, I suppose it depends on how you interpret um, the previous uh, section of part eight, but I think that this is the Bobless Doppelcoop and he's on a slightly skewed mission now to what he may have been doing before. Um, but yeah, all we see is him kind of like wandering around. I mean, full props to all the makeup they're doing this at the moment because I think, you know, to actually have all the different coops look so cool is one thing, but the effects they're doing in terms of the practical makeup effects are really cool as well, like straight out of a zombie movie almost when you see mm. him. Um Although I think it's uh, really dubious. If you're walking around and you just see a little red bandana, you know, in the middle of nowhere, you wouldn't use it to wipe yourself. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Nasty. But anyway, let's not linger on that. Too. Yeah, so then we cut to uh, the private jet that Cole is on with Albert and Diane and Tammy. Um, I, I presume this is happening after they've left Yankton. The last thing they did was they left the warden there, didn't they? Saying, mm. you know, look after... Mr. C, in yeah, that, you know, that went what, well. <laughs> yeah, see what he's doing. Um, and they're flying off, and then everything is interrupted when Tammy emerges as she does down <laughs> down the aisle um, with the message from Colonel Davis. Yeah, so we wondered who it was that he was calling, and it seems slightly—I I can't quite make sense of the timing of when 
he was calling having spoken to Lieutenant Knox because it seemed like it was happening earlier but I mean we're going to get to this later but who knows when the timings work out in, in all of these scenes but so yeah he's calling Cole to tell him about what's going on in South Dakota in Buckhorn more specifically uh, that there's something about Major Briggs we assume um, so after a bit of comedy misunderstanding of what it is that he's saying over the phone and waking up Diane and Albert by being very loud, it turns out that they're going to land in West South Dakota because they're in East South Dakota. Yeah, I think the other thing is I do kind of hope this isn't the last time we have heard from or seen Colonel Davis. You know, I'm starting to wonder if some of these cameos by um, like Ernie Hudson in this case are really going to be that short. You're going to be in it for a little bit and then off. Um, you know, they make an impression. It's really cool. But you realise that, you know, not not all of the 250-odd cast members were going to get, you know, major roles. But it's nice that maybe that was his part and you can kind of move on from that. But then speaking of cameos, we go from uh, potentially the last appearance of Winston Zedmore to all of a sudden Tim Roth shows up. <laughs> yeah, we could have been waiting for him to turn up for a while and speculating who he was going to be, especially after he got listed on the panel for San Diego Comic-Con, we thought, well, surely it's not just going to be a really small cameo if he's going to turn out to, you know, be on the con panel. Um, But he's finally turned up as the mysterious Hutch, who we heard about all the way back in parts one and two, who is the partner of... Chantel. Yes, uh, Jennifer Jason Leigh's character. Yeah, so I think they were both in The Hateful Eight, weren't they? Oh, yeah. yeah. But I think what's kind of interesting is that... So I remember in that conversation, this is after... Uh, Mr. C has killed Daria mm. and he asks Chantal to go and clean up in there afterwards. This is obviously linking to that bit where he says, you know, in three days time, I'm going to need you to be in a very specific place. And, you know, Hutch, Tim Roth's character, does say, you know, we've we been expecting you or something. Yeah, he says we're expecting you last night, which presumably is that they were expecting him immediately after he got out of prison. It is remarkable foresight for him to know that he was going to be getting out of prison on that day, given that he hadn't gone in yet. But I do wonder if what's going to happen now is we're going to see a change from the Mr. C, when he had Bob inside him, had the ability to maybe, you know, see a little bit into the future and kind of have slightly strange mind powers. Maybe that's going to drift away a little bit now. Um, But there's something weird about it now. I I think there is some... Other bits which are also implying that this may be a bobless version as well. Yeah, so when he first arrives on this farm, which I don't think is the farm he was talking to Ray about, I think it just happens to be a farm, um, and Hutch comes up to him and Hutch says, what do you need? Because obviously he looks completely dishevelled and bloodied. Uh, and of course, as we all know, uh, Mr C doesn't need anything. He wants things, but he doesn't need anything. But you get none of that here. Um, he just tells Hutch what he actually needs, which is what some uh, new phones and new gun and whatnot. And when both Chantal and Hutch appear, it's kind of noticeable that they don't seem too perturbed by Mr. C's appearance. It's almost like they it's like they expect it, but they don't see it to be a particularly weird situation for him to be in which might tell you something about what Mr. C has been up to in the last 25 years and maybe in some way had these events intertwined with Chantal and Hutch. But also, it does also speak to the idea that, you know, at the beginning of 
part one when you see Mr. C turning up at Beulah's house. There are characters involved who seem to be quite aware of what's going on. Mm. Then you know they are kind of used to it a little bit. Um, it's not too strange to them. And then we jump back up in the air again, and I quite like the idea that everything that's happening on the ground with Mr. C is happening just below wherever Gordon and the rest of them are up in the air somewhere in South Dakota. And Gordon explains to Diane that they need to land in Buckhorn, uh, which she is overjoyed to hear about. And a couple of interesting things happen. One is that Cole convinces her that they need to go because he tells her that it's a case about somebody that Agent Cooper used to know. And she responds by saying, oh, is it a Blue Rose case? Which suggests that Diane is very much in on what the Blue Rose cases were. And is this the first time that actually the Twin Peaks events, the original series, have actually been directly referred to as a Blue Rose case as well? I think it is. Certainly, we know now that they're referring to whatever happened to Major Briggs as a Blue Rose case which, given that they simply thought that he had died, is is quite unusual. And, of course, as viewers, we've known it's a Blue Rose case ever since we saw Briggs's head float past and explicitly state that what was going on was that. So it's kind of interesting that the Blue Rose mythology is, is really at the f- forefront here. And also, I remember it was the, the thing at the, you know, in the middle of the table, you know, the Entertainment Weekly cover. Mm. And everyone was like, oh, the Blue Rose. And it really is becoming the centrepiece of everything that's happening. Yeah. And the other thing that happens is Dan tries to switch on her mobile phone, uh, but it's just got a blocked signal and she seems kind of agitated by it. So what do you think that means? Because I'm not sure this is part of that weird thing that's happening in this where people have very funny interfaces on every screen they have. <laughs> but does that mean that she's in the air and that a number is called and the number is blocked at her end? Or does it mean there's no reception or... I thought it meant that there was no reception, but it wouldn't normally look like that on a phone. Yeah, it? but neither did that crazy app that could change <laughs> tracking devices and you know things like that. Um, yeah, it's a bit odd, but you know it's probably nothing. I think it's kind of cool that now she just has that look though that she gives Albert. It's almost like they've settled into a a different mode now, where you know nothing that she can say can really freak him out at all. So when she just stares at him and he's like, "I know, I know," you know. F you, Albert, or whatever. It's kind of funny. And then Tamara takes a call from Warden Murphy, who informs Cole that Bad Coop has got away, and presumably that Ray has got away as well. Um, and we get the wonderful pun of Cooper's flown the coop. <laughs> you can tell that David Lynch thinks that's the funniest line ever. Because <laughs> as a director, he just hangs on it for a while, and he's like, look at my line, look at my line. <laughs> but actually, do you think that she would have heard about Ray as well from Warden Murphy because he's involved in what's going on, right? And he's and would he have just said instead, oh, um, Mr. C has got away? Because otherwise he'd be giving away too much. You know, two people escaping would also tie back to him a little bit. Yeah, or he could, he could just say, oh, there was an escape and one of the people who got away was Cooper. Because he wouldn't necessarily want anyone to start thinking that there was a connection necessarily between him and whoever else escaped. Because the FBI wouldn't necessarily know that. But this does go back to that theory that's been floating around for a bit, that maybe Ray is not who we think he is anyway. Mm. So if he deliberately got caught, 
it's kind of an interesting thing that maybe he was released along alongside Coop as well. It's yeah. kind of a bit it's a bit unclear what's happening there. But um yeah, we'll see what happens. And then back on the ground, uh Mr C has got his hands on what looks like a seriously retro phone. Um, and sends a text message that reads, around the dinner table, the conversation is lively. I suppose that's going to be something to do with the, well, I suppose it's something to do with the convenience store. If you're looking for any link at all, hmm. it could be a code the same way there was the cow jumped over the moon thing. But uh, the only time you've really seen, you know, a dining table involved and that kind of uh, illusion, which is linked to the whole lodginess of what's been going on. You do wonder if that's the scene in Fire Walk With Me where at least um, the arm and Bob are sitting at the table and the other characters are all around. But again, that does argue against the idea that maybe he is Bobless. Maybe Bob is still there. It's really unclear what's going on. Or whether this is just a code message which means something else. And also we find out who the recipient is later. Yeah. And then he called Mr. Todd in Las Vegas which kind of closes the loop on the questions of who it was that was feeding Mr. Todd information or requests to have people killed. And had a hold over him as well. Yeah, and, and unless it turns out that there are two people in his life, but we, I think we can assume that it was just the one person he was taking instruction from who is now Mr. C. He does seem pretty screwed. It could be two people, it could be more. Because <laughs> <laughs> he calls and asks him, is it done yet? Presumably meaning to hit on Dougie. Yeah. And... Todd says no and he says oh it better be done the next time I see you and then he asks Hutch and Chantel to kill first of all Warden Murphy to tie up that loose end and then after him he says there'll be a double header in Las Vegas so presumably two people in Las Vegas but who he hasn't named yet so it could be that one of them is Dougie but he's expecting Dougie to be killed anyway Unless he assumes it's just not going to happen. Yeah. And the other could simply be Todd, that he's going to tie up that loose end as well. And then he gets in this brand new truck, which he drives off in. Presumably, what, to go and find Ray? To carry on his search for the coordinates? Yeah, because presumably he still has to get those coordinates. And if Ray is now the only person who knew them, having got them from uh, Hastings' secretary... But we'll come to the question of the coordinates in, in a bit, because things get very strange later on yeah i love the way that the way the scene ends he kind of throws the phone on the floor and he's like get rid of it and then hutch just shoots it with a shotgun kind of like you know hick style but it's kind of funny because he clearly knew that's what that guy would do a guy with a shotgun you know just shoot a phone in order to get rid of a burner <laughs> i did like the fact also uh, that tim roth spent most of that scene with uh, one of his hands down his trousers as well <laughs> <laughs> The thing is, though, although we may now know that Mr. C is the one in control of Mr. Todd, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's also the billionaire. I think it's still up in the air who the billionaire is. Yeah, I think they are going to end up being two separate people. Yeah. So then we move to the Las Vegas Police Department, where the three Fuscos are interviewing Bushnell about Dougie, basically, asking him if he knows of any reason why someone would want to kill him. And we learn a few things about Dougie's life. We know that he started working for Bushnell 12 years ago. We know that before that he was in a car accident. And that these weird episodes that people have sometimes alluded to, everybody believes that they are 
kind of remnants, uh, kind of aftershocks of the effects of this accident. And that's why maybe people have been excusing his slightly strange behaviour, because maybe it's something they've seen before. Yeah, also I think that after, you know, the slight craziness of part eight, it's actually quite nice to go back to Dougie, actually. It seems like we weren't with him for a while. And the other thing that's happened now is I do feel that the scenes in Las Vegas, if you compare them now to the ones that started off what back in part three, when everyone was complaining that it seemed odd that nobody really cared about Dougie, no one was very sympathetic, you know, even you know Janie was very dismissive of him. I really like the way they built this arc mm. to actually show that, you know, a lot of people around him are aware of what's happened to him in some respects. But they do actually care for him. He does have people looking out for him, which is nice. And that's kind of evolved quite nicely over the episodes. I think it's a nice way that that kind of plot has developed uh, quite a lot as well. So why do you think when Bushnell is talking to the Fusco brothers or cousins or Fusco friends, (laughs) the forever Fuscos, um, uh, why is it you think that there's that bit where Bushnell kind of gets a bit tense and he, he's kind of clenching his fist and gets a bit antsy about stuff. So I think that he has started to believe that there is some kind of collusion between Tom Sizemore's character, what's his name? Uh, Anthony Sinclair. Yeah, between him and somebody within the police department that Dougie has brought to light through the scribbles that he was making on the paperwork. And I wonder if if he feels that either the Fusco friends are not taking it seriously enough or, are, I don't know, maybe in on it. But maybe he feels like, at the moment, it's just him and Dougie who are up against it. And I, I think he he's feeling angry about whatever he perceives to be either collusion or inaction on the part of the police in treating it seriously. Because obviously now Dougie's car has blown up and somebody's tried to shoot at him in broad daylight. So he must think that the reason for this is because of the um, whatever it is that Dougie has uncovered in the paperwork, and not because he is in fact the return spirit of an FBI agent who got sucked into another dimension 25 years ago. There is that, yeah. Yeah. If he does think that's a reason, I'm impressed. <laughs> but I did like the fact that when I saw his fists, I still think he's going to fight somebody. I think he is. I think he's going to lamp somebody at some point in the future. It could be, it could be um, Anthony Sinclair. Yeah. Um, I think there'll be some cathartic resolution to these whole um, series of storylines in Las Vegas involving Dougie that will invoke, um, you know, a thump from uh, Bushnell at somebody we really don't like. Yeah, I'm wondering even at this point if it's going to turn out to be Hutch. I think Warden Murphy's a goner. Yeah. I think I think he's toast in a very dramatic and painful fashion. Yeah, because he'll pay, he'll have to somehow pay for what he did. Yeah. Uh, so they'll get rid of him, I think. Yeah, and I think Hutch and Chantel Chantel will then carry on to Las Vegas. They'll be given the names. Mister C will find out that Dougie's still alive. I don't know if there's some kind of clock ticking on how long he's got to actually get rid of him. If only one of them can live, we don't know. We haven't seen Mike in a while, actually. Mm. He hasn't interjected. But I wonder now if if Hutch is going to turn up and uh, get a uh, knuckle sandwich from Bushnell. (laughs) So then Bushnell leaves, and the three Fusco friends are left to kind of go over what they're thinking about what's happening. 
and the third Fusco, whatever his name is, <laughs> he is going to get very confusing. It's, it's so the names are getting a bit crazy now, and now to have uh, duplicate names in the same scenes is ridiculous. Um, so he starts talking about the fact that they have no information on Dougie pre nineteen ninety seven. So I suppose the implication is. For us, we know that Dougie was manufactured for a purpose or whatever, which probably tells us that that may have been the moment when he came into existence. Yeah. What they think is that maybe this is some link to some witness protection program. That's why he has no uh, records available before that time. Now, if that's 1997, where would that place things in terms of time we're looking at? That's what... uh, 18 years ago if this yeah. is 2015 yeah that would have been 18 years ago which would have given a six-year gap between dougie coming into existence and starting to work for bushnell yeah and also that would all that would mean that there was enough time for him to meet and marry janie and have a kid as well yeah because how old is sunny jim do you reckon maybe 11 10 11 yeah maybe younger so that could have even been a post-accident yeah even or, or post working for for Mullins. But we also have this other thing where they're intrigued by this whole prospect. So what they want to do is they do a little cup switcheroo mm. in order to get access to uh, the prints and DNA from Dougie Coop by uh, taking his coffee mug and bringing him a fresh cup of coffee. Which is interesting because they don't realise how much he likes coffee. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a nice moment where it's it's again just showing us those moments when he does kind of flip into his autopilot mode of just being the coffee-loving Cooper um, rather than being uh, the Dougie Coop that we know at the moment. Yeah, and presumably for the second time in this series, we're going to have an incident where somebody innocuously runs from fingerprints and in a top-secret office somewhere, a red light starts flashing saying, you won't believe his fingerprints just got run in this place. Or are they going to think that Doppelkoop has gone there, but the the ring thing on the left hand is going to be the correct way round, isn't it? Yeah, so I'm a bit confused. Is Dougie Coop going to have Dale Cooper's fingerprints now? Is that what's going to happen? I think it must be, because I think it is physically him yeah, and so, not yeah. Dougie. So I think it must be his fingerprints, his correct fingerprints, and his DNA. Which is another reason why these are going to flag with coal and you're going to see potentially in the same way that the military were alerted to major briggs the fbi are going to be alerted to uh dale cooper appearing but they'll know that it's potentially the real one not really because they think oh there's two of them going around but it's clear that cole does know that there's something fishy about these two coops which is really mirroring what's hawk uh, what hawk is thinking about as well in these episodes yeah because he now seems certain that there are two coopers yeah we then get this sort of bizarre interlude where they talk about how expensive a tail light was to fix. That dude's laugh is starting to look great on me a little bit. Yeah. And you can tell that David Lynch was probably like, oh, just just do it more crazy. Just overdo <laughs> it. And he's like just going for it every time. But What, what I did really like in that, though, was when uh, you have a shot of Dougie Coop and Janie sitting outside. And Dougie Coop is just blissfully unaware of anything that's going on around him. And Janie just looks in through the window and she can really see the uh, Fisco friends standing around laughing with each other. And she just has this look on her face of like, what the hell are you clowns doing? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised she's about to go in there as well. <laughs> <laughs> what was also really cool was, um, so they 
now know that the so what I also like is the bit where uh, the other cop comes in who has identified the palm print of the gun as one belonging to Ike the Spike. And what I really like is he is so excited about <laughs> the fact that he knows who it is and he wants to reveal it. And it's like, it's clearly a guy who they've been looking for for a while. But there's this weird thing about the cops in Las Vegas who are really gleeful about strange things like this. They're so excited about finally getting their hands on him. But it's interesting also because, like you were saying earlier, with some of the events happening, um, you know, things converging and some of the plot lines starting to be sealed off mm. a little bit. This episode is is really starting to do that a lot, where you get the sense that a lot of the characters introduced as secondary parts in some of the non-Twin Peaks plot lines may be actually starting to reach the end of their mini arcs almost. And a few might carry over, but I think it's kind of getting to the point where the Ike story potentially could be over relatively soon. The same with Warden Murphy. And it's interesting that all that could be left towards the end will be the convergence of lots of these residual characters on the town of Twin Peaks. So then sticking with Dougie and Janie E, this was the bit where I thought we might have seen the appearance of Mike talking to him from the uh, Red Room, but that didn't happen. Yeah, so he goes into another one of his almost kind of transits and first he's staring at uh, the American flag in the corner and you get a few strains of America the Beautiful kind of going on in his head and then a woman emerges from a door next to them and she's wearing like a white shirt black skirt and then these bright red high-heeled shoes and he tracks her and in particular her shoes as she walks across the hall and then as she disappears his gaze kind of lingers on the electrical outlet in the wall, um, which is a, a double socket that just looks very similar to the one that he emerged out of before. And the thing about the red shoes is that the first time we watched it, we immediately thought of two particular people who have worn red high heels in the show before. So the first one I thought of was Audrey, because there's that bit right in the very first episode of season one, where she goes to school wearing these flat shoes and then she changes into red high heels out of her locker. And I'm pretty sure that she wears those red high heels quite a bit in the series and a lot of other scenes as well. So I think Coop must have seen her wearing them. And the other person who we remembered wears red high heels is Lil in Fire Walk With Me. Yeah, so she's the one who Gordon uses to portray a coded message to Chet Desmond and Sam Stanley. Um, about the events that are going on in Deer Meadow, uh, which they're about to investigate. And it was interesting because obviously it's a Blue Rose case then, which Cole is leading on. And so you wonder if uh, Dale would also have a, an idea of uh, the use of Lil to do these things as well. So there could be two things going on here. And to be honest, there could be more. So if there are other reasons why the uh, red high heels are important, please let us know. I mean, those are the two that immediately jumped out, but there could be more things we're missing. Yeah, I, mean, I know a lot of people are desperate to see the return of Audrey and anything that even hints anything Audrey-esque is being jumped on. I think, you know, the the kind of fan-friendly romantic connection would be that he's thinking about Audrey in that moment. It could be that we'll never know um, because it's, it's not as directly clear as some of the other things that have set him off, like a police badge or case files or, um, you know, coffee. Uh, but it's that it's interesting to speculate. 
Yeah, I did wonder if we know they they do uh, show the electrical socket. I was really certain that something was going to happen. Again, I was thinking, is something going to come out? Is something going to go in? Are we going to hear that strange crackly electrical sound that you sometimes get? But it's odd because he has that moment. This is for the first time where, although he saw that mini version of the evolution of the arm appearing during the fight with Ike, this time we actually have a moment where he must be aware of where he's come from in some respect. So mm. there's an awareness of not just where he is, but where he has been. So all these things are starting to bubble up to the surface now in Dougie. And what's been cool uh, during some of the scenes at the police station is that we're starting to hear some really nice original music cues from things like Firewalk with me. Because I think we hear a little bit of the Deer Meadow shuffle playing in the background, which continues through to the raid when they capture Ike the Spike. Yeah, so the Fusco friends meet up with the rest of the police who are staking out the motel where they know Ike the Spike is. And Ike the Spike is upstairs knocking back whiskey and he leaves a phone message for a JT. Yeah, which can't be Duncan Todd. I presume he's DT, unless he has a middle name that we don't know about. <laughs> or it's Justin Timberlake. <laughs> In a shock twist. Uh, he's, so he says, no cigar and I'm taking medical leave, which is presumably code for I didn't manage to kill him and I'm injured and I'm not going to carry on. Um, but then as soon as he leaves his hotel room, uh, the cops descend and uh, he gets nabbed right in the corridor. Yeah, a lot of zingers this episode, again. Yeah. With the, uh, what does he say? He says, uh, we've got your palm prints. In fact, we've got your whole palm. <laughs> Wonderful. It's, it's only at that point that you actually see the giant oversized mm. unnecessarily huge bandage that he's got on his hand as well i like the fact that, that when he's in this kind of put upon position he's kind of really muted like when he was oh no when his uh all was broken mm. and now he's like no but i wonder if this is now going to lead the fusco friends to mr todd um or whoever arranged the hit as an intermediary because mr todd had the envelope and the envelope ended up under his motel room door didn't it um but it, it it's all basically coming together in what i can only imagine is going to be some uh, epic showdown in which bushnell lamps everybody <laughs> <laughs> and then we're back to the sheriff station where we get that beautiful shot of the sun shining through the trees again over the top of the building and lucy and andy are having a bizarre discussion about whether to get chair which is presumably for the study that they're going to put in wally's bedroom in beige or red and the minute this happened i thought this was going to be the this is the chair yeah uh, it's a nice little mystery they are starting to play with the whole format of things as well um, yeah but it's just a really sweet scene where lucy gets andy to agree that they can have her color and then she immediately orders it in his color <laughs> but we've we've paused every screen when she's buying the chair uh the order confirmation screen the payment screen everything and we can't find a single date anywhere those bastards <laughs> yeah it's really strange because i think this does play into the fact that obviously the dates are getting really screwy now and you know we're it's odd it's a few weeks on from when everyone was going crazy over whether the Las Vegas scenes are in 2003 or with the 315 meant 2003 and 2015, all kinds of things. And now 
they're throwing dates all over the place and then you have a scene like this where you really want to see a date to work out what's going on just to put some time reference on it and they just don't put one in um but yeah it's kind of a, a bit strange but it's funny that they use uh, instead of paypal what do they have instead of this pay now yeah get around that one yeah obviously didn't get the uh, product placement money from paypal <laughs> well they're not mercedes are they <laughs> And then we suddenly get this really quick and completely unexpected scene with, uh, I think it's Johnny Horn, yeah, isn't it? And so is that his, Sylvia? Sylvia, who's with him, and you hear her shouting to someone named Mary, who is presumably his carer or something like that. And he's running around the house, and then you hear a a smash, and you see the aftermath of what looks like him smashing his head into the wall, and pictures have fallen down and glass is broken and I think he's still alive he looks like he's still breathing yeah but obviously we weren't expecting Johnny Horn to be in it because it's a different actor I think it's also funny that you know they they might just spend another what eight episodes odd you know just revealing every relative of Audrey Horn <laughs> except for Audrey at this point it'd be kind of funny just to keep going like this because it was unexpected to do this yeah uh, it's interesting that they haven't done it yet although maybe you know maybe this is the event that means that Audrey will show up but at this point it's anyone's guess yeah you know um and it's kind of funny that you know there's a picture on the floor isn't there a waterfall so so mm. like but I don't know again if that's just kind of a, a bit of sly humor you know looking at the falls and he's fallen down I don't think it seemed to be like anything to do with the um, the uh, falls near the Great Northern, etc. And I think there was a picture of Bob Hope on the other side, but I wasn't really sure <laughs> so what was going on there. But it was weird just to have these bits where they're introducing these characters very briefly. It's almost like when they had that shot of Nadine. They yeah. just put it in all of a sudden and, and that was it. Yeah. So then in one of those nice little kind of semi-shock returns to a character who we've missed for a long time, we see... Charlotte Stewart return as Betty Briggs, still at home, and much to the denial of our theories and the theories of many others, still at home in Twin Peaks as well, mm. not in Buckhorn, South Dakota, as the uh, secretary of Bill Hastings. So she's still there. She's typing away on her MacBook. So we've had Lenovo's, <laughs> <laughs> Dell's, IBM ThinkPads. Mm. Um another macbook and uh she's sitting there typing bobby walks in and he's brought with him hawk and sheriff frank truman and it's interesting so when they come up to say hello i think doesn't she say you know do you want some coffee at the beginning and they're all kind of no it's okay you know there's uh, there's business to talk about and as frank starts to explain why they're there and starts talking about the fact that is that they want to talk about the night that uh, Garland met with Cooper. Yeah. Because they know that something is going on with that. Immediately she stops them. And she then reveals quite extraordinarily that uh, this was all foretold by Garland mm. um, before he disappeared many years ago. Yeah, so he told her that Bobby and Hawk and Sheriff Truman would turn up one day. Obviously not which Sheriff Truman it was. Which is a nice touch, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that they would ask her about Cooper. And he left her with instructions to give them something when they did. And in some respects, she seems 
surprised that the day has finally come but I don't think she's surprised that it happened I think she seemed more surprised that after all this time you know it must have been something that she'd waited for for so long and when you do wait for something for so long when the day actually comes that it happens it's a strange thing to experience and I think that's what was going on I don't think she ever doubted that it would happen yeah we've spoken about this before but it did always seem like she knew a lot about the work that Major Briggs was doing. Yeah. And there was a connection there that, you know, I, although he was always very reticent to talk about what he did with Project Blue Book, it was clear that he did share some of these things with her. Uh, so even somebody who took immense pride in sticking to the rules and keeping everything secret, he still shared things that way. So I think there's a tremendous moment where you're feeling that... Um, she never knew when this was going to happen, like you say. But maybe it suddenly brings back the memory of him as well. And yeah. I think it's a really nice way that it's showing two things. One, it's really cool to have a character like Major Briggs come back and be such an important character, even though the actor passed away. It's like he's been given such a pivotal role in events. And also, given that everyone's waiting for this character to show up, that character to show up, I actually think it's nice that the way it's paced... Again, it would be different in the context of a full 18-hour event. When a character appears with such significance, they're given the room to breathe. They're kind of given their own section of an episode to have their scene and have that pivotal role. It's not like they're lost in the cacophony of having, oh, look, there's that character, that character, that character. I mean, obviously, Shelley and Norma go together because of the double R. Mm. But here you just have the introduction or the reintroduction of Betty and you have a nice scene that kind of allows you to kind of savour her presence again. Yeah. And also when she hands over the little metal rod doodad or whatever it is, she has this lovely moment with Bobby where she says to him, oh, you know, when, when all this happened, you were in a very different place to where you are now. But your dad always somehow knew that things were going to turn out right for you. And it all calls back to that wonderful scene in the original series where they're in the double R and they have that conversation in one of the booths where he tells Bobby about the dream that he had. The scene. vision of hope. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it kind of, it harks back to that and you, you, you almost got hearing Major Briggs's voice yeah. saying all these things as well. It's a wonderful moment. And of course, after the misdirection of the Lucy Andy scene, it turns out that it's Betty who says, this is the chair. Hmm going to have to update our little uh, listening post alpha intro <laughs> <laughs> so then we're back over in Buckhorn and team FBI have turned up uh, and they're all going to go in and see the body but Diane decides that she's really not in the mood for that and it almost feels to me like she's engineering a reason to be by herself while the rest of them go in to have a look at the body um, so she breaks out a cigarette and has a typical Diane line uh, where they try to get her to not smoke. It's like, we're in an effing morgue. <laughs> and she does this funny thing where even after they've all left the room and shut the door, she has like just little double look over to make sure that they have all definitely gone and the door is closed before she gets out her phone. And then she seems to agonise for a few moments over whether or not she's going to switch it on. And when she does, an unknown sender has sent her the text message around the dinner table, the conversation's lively. 
But this time the text message is in uppercase. Yeah, which it wasn't when Mr. C yeah. sent it. So maybe something fishy is going on. I doubt it's a continuity error. It could be a, a message which is being passed on through an intermediary. But certainly it does flip on its head potentially the relationship that we think we're seeing between Diane and Mr. C. Yeah. I think what's really notable is, you know that bit where um, Cole speaks to Warden Murphy and he says, I want you to give him his phone call and I want to hear all about it or whatever. There's that same kind of cheeky look he has when he leaves the room where he almost is keeping an eye on Diane as well. It's almost like he's he is monitoring absolutely everything. It's part of that ruse he has where maybe he actually pretends that he can't hear sometimes to kind of make people be on the back foot a little bit, but constantly be watching everything that's going on. Um, and the other thing that's noticeable about his interactions is, as coarse as Diane is, he never tells other people, you know, I apologise for Diane. Mm. But with Albert, he always does. So there's a very <laughs> different relationship that they have there, um, which is kind of interesting. But I do get a sense that Cole may have known what might be about to happen. Yeah. And I I don't know if Diane is getting this directly from Mr. C. I don't know what purpose he would have in messaging her. I wonder if there is some kind of intermediate. I mean, it could even be Philip Jeffries. I know we're ascribing every unknown thing in the show. It must be the magical, mysterious Philip Jeffries again. It's either him or it's Windermere. Yeah. <laughs> it's basically the equivalent of a wizard did it. It doesn't make sense. Philip Jeffries did it. Um, so it could be him. It could be that the message has been relayed to another one of these crazy... Uh, boxes that fold in on themselves who knows okay but if we had to say that you know diane was on the side of mr c or the fbi and cole she's come around what do you think is actually going on i don't think she's on the side of mr c definitely not intentionally so i think it would be too much of an about face from that scene in yankton prison uh, I think narratively it wouldn't make any sense and I think it would be a massive rug pull for the audience. Not that they wouldn't do something like that, but I, d I just don't get that feeling. She must be in cahoots with someone, but I'm not sure that it's Cole and the FBI, although I get the impression that maybe Cole has a feeling that something's going on, which is a way he's keeping her around. Because it was really odd that they brought her into the room when they were... Well, into the viewing room when they were talking mm. to Bill Hastings because she's not part of the official investigation so does Cole know that she's in communication with someone whether it's Philip Jeffries or whoever and that she's going to feed back relevant information in some way that, that she's going to get from, from being in on some of these things I don't know yeah I don't think she's on the bad side I, I get the impression that she's somehow working for or thinks she's working for the greater good hmm and I do think it's something to do with something that's authorised by Cole in some way. I get the impression that he's, you know, he's trying to orchestrate something in the background. Um, but you know, like when he got rid of Tammy when they were talking about Philip Jeffries. Yeah. I think he has a very um, straightforward view of what's need to know. And it could be something which he's discussing with Diane that maybe even Albert doesn't know about. Yeah. So as the rest of Team FBI are being escorted in to see Major Briggs, we finally have all in one place. We've got uh, the Buckhorn PD team and we've got Lieutenant Knox from the military and we've got all of Team FBI there. 
So it's like the, the meeting of the minds that we've all been hoping would eventually be drawn together into the case of the headless Major Briggs. And we get a, a bit of a rush of information. We've been wondering for a while why we haven't heard anything about uh, Phyllis Hastings' murder, what was going on there. And suddenly um, the Buckhorn detective, who I, I cannot think of as anyone other than JJ from JJ's Diner, um, explains to them that well, first of all, uh, Hastings was having an affair with Ruth, that Hastings' wife was found dead in their home, that the lawyer George has been arrested for it already. All this has already happened. And then crucially, also says that Hastings' secretary died the next day in a car explosion, which answers so many questions. I mean, what it was that Mr. C and um, Jack... Jack were wiring the car for we didn't know if it was a bug or an explosion or what but it turns out it was an explosion so they've they've killed off the secretary which feels odd because she also had the information that now only ray has got i'm not sure what the purpose is but we also now know that the information is with ruth that's true on her body like what i've written on her hand or something yeah and um we also now know that the Buckhorn police have at least found Phyllis and arrested George. And we get a cheeky comment from Albert about oh, what's going to happen in season two. Um, and a bit of a smirk from David Lynch in the background. Yeah. Which I suspect, I suspect there ain't going to be a season two. Yeah. I suppose if you're thinking about how this is working, about halfway through the series, this is about the time where if you condense seasons one and two this is where james and evelyn show up (laughs) you know it's about that midpoint of the series you know everything has been resolved crime Mm. crime over and now they're like let's just do a bit of craziness so we never know next week it could be the return of james the return of evelyn maybe even the return of malcolm we don't know (laughs) but when it was originally going to come back wasn't it going to come back for nine episodes yeah so this would have been the end yeah if they hadn't negotiated uh, however however long a series it was that they wanted to Yes, make. it would always be interesting, I think, to work out whether the original script was um, kind of padded out almost with things like part eight. You know, was mm. that just expanded beyond belief to make it into a, um, a single hour of TV? Alternatively, did they go in and add more subplots that they wanted to develop a little bit more? Or did they really change the scope of the story? You know, are there whole strands here that didn't exist? I mean, is the, well, for example, is the Dougie subplot a lot um, more drawn out? Drawn out, yeah, yeah, uh, than it was originally, just to kind of make it, you know, be a bit bigger. Because you can almost imagine that being a much shorter thing potentially. Yeah, and they've kind of expanded it, and then they've given this. Uh, plot involving Sinclair they brought Bushnell they've kind of padded it out with characters who are still tied to the Las Vegas section and they I can't imagine Bushnell making it to Twin Peaks no I do wonder if if they had originally done nine and then hoped to get another series to come back and do another nine or whatever they would have had to accelerate it they would have had to brought Cooper back as he was before the end of Mm. the first nine because I think people would have just lost it if they hadn't hadn't done that. <laughs> but also, I mean, sadly, when you when you're watching scenes like this, and for example, you know, you're watching 
cast members giving their final performances, you realise that if they hadn't done it all now, they would not have been able to yeah. do it. Because you would have had what no Albert for the next season. It would have been, it would have been tragic. Yeah, no Doc Hayward, no uh, Log Lady. Yeah, yeah, it 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 goes on and it will continue to go on. Quite sadly. And this next scene, I just love the fact that there seems to be some kind of instant chemistry between Constance and Albert, <laughs> where they they're just cracking one-liners over a headless body on a slab. It must be a coroner thing. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I I don't know if it's possible for a, a single scene like that to have launched a thousand ships, but I think it has online. <laughs> <laughs> so they obviously they see the body, they see that it's a body in his forties, not his seventies. Um, Cole and Albert go off into a corridor uh, where everyone can hear them because Cole is shouting. So I don't know why they think they've gone off somewhere private to do it. It's a bit like that episode in the original series where Cole's trying to have a conversation with Coop and everyone can hear him. Oh yeah, Truman knocks on the door and yeah. he's like, uh, just so you know, we can hear everything you're saying out here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Albert's pointing out that the body isn't old enough, but Gordon doesn't seem phased by this as an issue at all. He says, well, you know, Cooper knew him and now you know he's, he's in South Dakota, Cooper's around in South Dakota. He doesn't seem to dismiss the possibility that this is Major Briggs because the body isn't old enough, which again suggests that Gordon knows something about, I don't know, time travel, dimension, Blue Rose cases, whatever it is. Yeah, certainly I think, you know, if you read The Secret History, it's clear that he knows an awful lot about what's going on. We just don't know how much of what's in that is really true here. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, a lot of that is coming true. It's missing bits of information, but the broad strokes of it are definitely popping up here. Yeah. And then Constance also reveals that she found the ring in Major Briggs' stomach, which is one of those moments where you just think, please, please, in the next episode, can we have them head off to Las Vegas for some reason? Between them having the ring, and as we said in the previous episode, there can surely be only one Dougie and Janie E in the country who are married. Between that and the Las Vegas police running Cooper's fingerprints, they've got to turn up in Las Vegas, haven't they? Yeah. And that's got to shake Cooper. I mean, I, I say that, it probably won't. It'll probably stare at them like, uh, like say, do I vaguely know you? But you never know. It could be something that Cole now says or someone says that will kind of snapping out, snap him out of it a little bit. Um, I can almost imagine a bit of a scene where the Fusco friends are going to turn up and be all like, ah, oh, we figured this out. We think this guy is Dale Cooper when they run the prints. Because maybe they have access to law enforcement prints. You don't know. Mm. Um, but you can almost see Albert barge in and take over the investigation because they'll be there because they want to get Dougie because they know that that ring was found with Briggs. Yeah. And I think he's going to be as dismissive of uh, the small town Las Vegas police <laughs> as he was originally uh, of... Um, the sheriff's station in Twin Peaks. Yeah. And that might be the comeuppance that the uh, Fusco friends actually get. <laughs> and then the final piece of uh, huge information that we get in this scene that is dropped incredibly casually is when JJ reveals that Hastings and Ruth Davenport were running a blog about alternate dimensions. Da da da! <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, our brains just went. 
if you were very quiet and you listened at about what uh so uk time around 2 30 a.m uh you could hear a collective gasp across the nation <laughs> as everyone was like uh i think we better pay attention here yeah So then we're back in the woods in Twin Peaks again, where Jerry, presumably still high, I know this is a continuation of what happened before, but he's still kind of very confused, uh, very disorientated, and he's staring at his foot, which has now started talking to him. Yeah, I can't tell if he still hasn't been able to find his way home after the last time he was in the woods and completely high. Because he said something he stole his car. Yeah. Hmm. Is, is he still just living on whatever he's got in his rucksack, which is presumably just more drugs <laughs> <laughs> but yeah his his foot is telling him that it's not his foot yeah and i'm still not sure about all this because i think although he is high that's clear um <laughs> i i think he has experienced something yeah he seems kind of on edge and you can almost imagine him having experienced potentially even the white lodge where he is you don't know um but not being aware of what it was and now it's completely screwed him up. But I like the physical comedy of him kind of grabbing his foot and, and falling over. Uh, but I do wonder if even that plot line, you know, we're reading a lot into it. You know, maybe he's been to one of the lodges or experienced something. But this is exactly what we did with Jacoby. Yeah. And we thought, oh, there's something serious going on. We have to follow everything. Um, I'd almost like to see that plot line converge and a confused Jerry being found by... You know, a slightly grizzled Dr. Amp with one of his shovels <laughs> offering to help dig him out of the shit. <laughs> That'd be a nice fitting way for that to happen. And maybe uh, Jerry turning around and saying, I'm your biggest fan. Yeah. <laughs> so then we uh, see Chad for the first time in a while. Chad at two dinners, Broxford. Yeah. And he's chatting up the conference room. <laughs> so um, the rest of the sheriff's department come back from visiting Betty and tell him that he's not supposed to be having lunch in the conference room and kick him out. And he has to do a, a comedy walk out of the room trying to balance all of his many lunches together. I don't know. I think, you know, I'm not going to sympathise with him, but I did feel a bit bad for him for the first time. Yeah. Because it's like everyone ganging up on him. I mean, he's a complete knob, but it's awful to see quite nice characters who would usually show some compassion just being so dismissive of him i mean he is a tool yeah but it's harsh to what watch him do that slow walk and even hawk not offering to open the door until he gets pushed i mean it's funny but i kind of felt a little bit bad for chad yeah. find another conference room chad <laughs> <laughs> and then they're puzzling over how to open the metal rod doodah that they were given by betty and Bobby is just standing outside of the room grinning because, of course, he knows how to open it. And he hasn't told them yet. He's just waiting to see if they can't figure it out. And he reveals that he knows how to do it because his dad brought one home one night and he showed him how to do it. So we're going to go back outside. So we kick Chad out of the conference room for no purpose other than just to kick him out of the conference room. I hope that wherever he went to have his lunch, he was kicked out of there too. <laughs> and they should have lots of scenes of him just in the background for the next... 10 hours or whatever it is <laughs> just holding his lunch just trying to sit down and find a place to have it and then people just seem to move on all the time oh sad chad oh, sad chad, sad, chad. <laughs> so they go outside and bobby reveals that you 
throw this thing on the ground and then you can hear it making a, a kind of humming tone from inside, from the vibration of it striking the ground. And then once the humming stops and you hear a kind of jangle, you throw it on the ground again and it opens up. And it must be one of those trick things that is um, clicked together in a certain way that when it when it rattles or when it's shaken or whatever it is, it kind of unclicks itself. Yeah, and it's not the first time that Twin Peaks has dabbled with these puzzle boxes at all because immediately when I saw this thing, at first I thought it was going to be some weird alien artefact. You know, I'm still not sure if they're going to go full UFO. So I saw this thing and I was like, oh, it's a bit weird. But when they managed to open it and did that, it really reminded me of uh, the puzzle box that Thomas Eckhart hmm. uh, gave to Catherine and Andrew to open yeah. uh, you know, towards the end of season one. You know, it was like a box within a box in a box and they opened using a specific uh, configuration of how the different pieces slotted together. Yeah, and in fact, the chair that Betty removes it from was also itself a kind of puzzle box where the um, trigger to open the top of the chair was actually underneath the chair and to the side and it opens up. And it reminded me of some of the things that we saw in that puzzle box museum in Hakone in Japan that we went to where they had not just the traditional puzzle boxes where you slide the sides apart from each other, but all sorts of kind of puzzle box furniture where there were hidden drawers or drawers that would only open if you um, held things in a certain way or doors that opened in a completely different way to the way you expect. Um, there were all sorts of things that were had these hidden mechanisms inside them and the chair reminded me of those as well. Mm. So then they've managed to open the metal doodah and inside are two tiny pieces of rolled up paper and the first one it's got two triangles on like the twin peaks symbol and what looks like a full moon and a crescent moon and underneath the crescent moon is the um kind of weird ace owl cave uh symbol that was on uh, mr c's playing card and that we've kind of seen replicated in some forms in, in our cave. And certainly, it's, I think it was the one that is similar to the head of the mother character as well in yeah. Uh, part eight. Yeah, and when it is written 253 yards east of Jack Rabbit's palace, before leaving Jack Rabbit's palace, put some soil from that area in your pocket, and then a time of 2.53, and then two dates, 1st of October, 2nd of October. So what we have now is 253 appearing again. So this was originally the message from the evolution of the arm, not the giant. Yeah, the giant yeah. with 430. Yeah. So it's interesting that actually these numbers may just not appear once. We may think we've seen it and they may come up again. Mm. Um, so we have that as a distance and we have it at a time. Now, we saw 253 before as the time when Bob, who was inhabiting Mr. C at the time, was going to be pulled back into the lodge um so something funny is really happening now in terms of what's really going on with these schedules i still think that that's already happened because we know that the events in buckhorn are maybe not too far off i don't mm. know but it's clear that 253 is an important time and here it's it's definitely a time but also the distance is involved um in how far you have to go east from jack rabbit's palace yeah, and Bobby knows where Jack Rabbit's palace is and is presumably the only person who could have explained where it was. Yeah. So again, Major Briggs knew that Bobby would be involved in doing this. Yeah, it's a very nice kind of redemption for his arc, mm. actually, that he has turned out 
good. I still don't know if he is going to be involved in this drug business. Um, I know that when it when he first appeared, there was that talk about him being involved in watching the cameras across the border. Mm. So potentially it was like, well, maybe he's the guy who's letting people across the border in the first instance. If he is actually good, it's kind of nice. And I do hope that what he does catch on camera is something related to maybe Cooper or something like that at some point. Um, but it's nice to see that he's got that kind of childlike quality still in him a little bit. Um, he hasn't turned out uh, to be as much of a dick as Mike has, <laughs> I suppose. Um, but yeah, we also get these two dates. Mm. So we know that something is going to happen on the 1st and the 2nd of October, which are, what, two days away and then the day after that. Yeah. And what do you make of the symbols? Obviously, we've got the two triangles, which are familiar. But then, do you think that's a sun and a moon or a full moon and a crescent moon? So I think you're right. I think there's something to do with the moon, um, like the shapes of a, you know, of, of different kinds of moon. But I just don't really know what the symbol means when it's above that funny owl cave ace card symbol the one thing it did remind me of and this goes back to the puzzle boxes was the symbols you see on one of the internal boxes you know the one where andrew is trying to open it and he says oh i'll try some dates or numbers yeah and it's yeah. got these funny moon shaped symbols around the outside and I never really understood how he could read numbers off that. There didn't seem to be numbers on it, but he was like, oh, I'll try, you know, the day the box arrived mm. or, you know, uh, Thomas Eckhart's birthday or Josie's birthday, things like that. I never really understood how that worked. But those symbols did look familiar. And again, that ties to the puzzle boxes that he got. But also the fact that Andrew Packard was kind of a important character, at least in the context of the secret history, because he has seen some of the very weird things in the woods. Mm. And to be honest, it's such a weird, strange stretch to link to Andrew Packard at this point. Um, but it's perfectly plausible that it could have happened as well, given that uh, everything else that's going on is completely bonkers. <laughs> yeah, because we've had both the, the kind of thematic link of the, the puzzle that you have to open to get something and the visual link of what looks like lunar phases being, being depicted on there. But I, I wonder if... Because it says 2.53, it doesn't say whether that's a.m. or p.m. And the reason I wonder if it was the sun and the moon is maybe if during the day at 2.53 you would be able to access one lodge during the night, you would access another. Does the weird symbol from the playing card mean the black lodge? Um, or, or, just, or just two different dimensions from each other? And does it mean that on those two nights the moon would be in the right shape? I don't know. It could be any one of those things. <laughs> it could be all of them simultaneously, or it could be nothing. Yeah, and I think it's most likely to be none of them. <laughs> so what's the deal with the part of the message that told them they have to put soil in their pockets? So I don't know. I mean, the one thing it made me immediately think of was um, the fact that you have that little pool of oil in mm. Glastonbury Grove. And the fact that, you know, when Margaret turns up at the end of season two and she has a little jar of the scorched engine oil that her late husband gave her, she says something like, you know, this oil is an opening to a gateway. And I wonder if there's, you know, this black oil which opens the Black Lodge, but maybe the 
soil from this very wholesome place, Jack Rabbit's Palace, is something which is useful to open maybe the gate to the White Lodge. Because remember, you see Briggs in the White Lodge at some point, or mm. maybe he's just thinking about how it may have appeared to him, but it's like a lush green area, and maybe, you know, it's not a big distance, is it? 253 yards. Yeah. I mean, it's a decent amount, but, it, but maybe it just means that you have to take something from this one location where... He had, obviously, some good times with his son, Bobby, when they were young. And he kind of is taking that love in the form of soil and taking it to the new opening. Yeah, because if, if you think back to what Wonder Merle said when he was trying to figure out how to get himself into the Black Lodge, and he realised that fear helped open the the door. And that, I think, does he even say something like, love and fear open the doors or something like that? Yeah, I think that's what... Uh, Briggs says when he's been drugged and Wyndham is interrogating him and that's what suddenly makes him click. Now Wyndham was obviously only interested in opening the door of the Black Lodge but it's clear that Briggs has a better understanding of the White Lodge as well. Um, so I get the impression that you know maybe this is more linked to that and I can see them trying to create the symmetry of showing two similar approaches to opening the two lodges but you know whereas I remember that when he, when Cooper gets the the uh, scorched engine oil and he I think he wafts it in uh, Ronette's face she kind of mm. flinches immediately because it's the smell that she recognises and it triggers that same fear response as well yeah um, you can see how Bobby was almost giddy with excitement and joy at the idea this had happened that maybe you can see a similar thing happening in the opposite way to open the White Lodge yeah because Briggs is very deliberately not only including him but including him in ways that reference his childhood um, the weird kind of metallic doodle that that he opens that he remembers from a kid and he gets so excited using it and then going back to those childhood memories of being with his dad at Jack Rabbit's palace is he deliberately including Bobby in a way that will make Bobby's feelings of love going back to his, his childhood with his family will make them open the door to the White Lodge? Yes, yeah, so it'll kind of regress him to that happier state. And then we get a brief scene on the steps outside Buckhorn PD, where presumably Badan has been told once again she's not allowed to smoke inside, so she's now smoking on the steps outside. And I presume that Albert and Constance are inside, probably yeah. still flirting. Yeah, Ho hopefully doing eloping. Some... <laughs> <laughs> doing some autopsy or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Gordon and Tamara come out, and... There's this really bizarre moment where the door seems to hit Gordon on the arm when it's closing. Yeah, that's how annoying Tammy is. <laughs> she doesn't even keep the door open properly for Gordon. I think you only noticed it on, like, the third watch. Yeah. That he kind of, he jerks a little bit to one side and you realise the door would hit him. And they just carry on with the take. But he has this, this grin on his face, which is like, yeah, just carry on. Yeah, you, you can see the smile between him and, and also Laura Dern, where they seem to be saying, are we carrying on with the take? Yeah, okay, so we're carrying on with the take. And, and so they just carry on. And Gordon stares at Diane and stares at her cigarette and stares at Diane and stares at her cigarette. And eventually, much to Tammy's annoyance, uh, Diane offers her cigarette and Gordon accepts it and uh, has a dragon and gives it back again. Um, and of course, he said in an earlier episode that he'd given up. What do you think about the potential relationship between Tammy and Cole. Do you think there is something going on here? I don't know. She seemed um, 
disappointed and annoyed with Cole for smoking in a way that seems a bit too personal for co-workers necessarily or at least co-workers who weren't also really good friends like i could imagine albert bollocking gordon for smoking because that's the relationship that they have but it felt odd that there seemed to be that between them and obviously you know denise was hinting at gordon well i know what you're like gordon are you absolutely sure you want to take this you know attractive younger female agent around with you so she seemed to be hinting at the fact that she was worried that something might go on. So, yeah, I, I don't know. But I've, I've never known anyone so unable to just stand on camera. Just just, just stand, literally just stand there. I mean, what's <laughs> going on? But maybe the whole point was the awkwardness of the situation. Because obviously Tammy and Diane don't seem to like each other very much. Um, and Diane and Cole were having a bit of a a kind of old memory of when they used to stand outside and smoke together, which I know, you know, people kind of bond over when they're the naughty kids and they go outside to the smoking area and they have a chat together. What I did like is when you first see Diane, uh, she's wearing uh, what looked like green MC Hammer trousers. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they're absolutely huge, which is interesting for a scene about smoking because they are indeed too legit to quit. (laughs) (laughs) Had to get in there. Had to get in there. It's been in my head since I first watched it. I was like, I'm going to put that on the podcast. <laughs> and then we go back inside and we see Tammy interviewing Bill Hastings. And what's interesting is that not only are Gordon and Albert and JJ watching from behind the glass screen but they've brought Diane in with them which again implies that Cole either wants Diane more involved or or he wants to see how she reacts to things yeah yeah, yeah. so Tammy's asking Bill about his blog and what exactly happened so she says oh there was an entry in your blog that said that you went to another dimension and met a man called the Major And from what we can gather from uh, Bill's incredibly tearful, blubbering uh, explanation of events, Ruth got some coordinates from some research that she did where they knew that if they went to a certain time and place, they could access another dimension, which feels like a lodge entrance. It feels like the entrance to the Black Lodge that would only appear when Jupiter and Saturn were conjoined and in the particular Glastonbury Grove and all that kind of thing. Although how a school librarian can figure this out it's quite impressive yeah yeah (laughs) just because they're good at digging up information (laughs) so they go there and they meet the major who he identifies from the pictures as major briggs and he says that the major was hiding there or hibernating there as he described it but was concerned that other people were looking for him and he wanted to move to another location and asked them to get coordinates from a top secret military database and explain to them how to access it. So they do this, they go back to the place where they met the mage in the other dimension to give him the coordinates. And then it all gets very jumbled. Evidently other people turn up. Um, There's some kind of violence that goes on. They seem to give Briggs the coordinates and they describe him 
as floating up, which is similar to what the giant did, to what Leland did in Fire Walk with Me when he was in the lodge, or that kind of thing. And that he then says, Cooper, Cooper, and then his head vanishes. Yeah. So I think this is tying into potentially this zone maybe being the black and white area mm. in the purple zone or whatever it was called the purple room yeah um so there i think what's interesting is like you say it's very similar to the giant floating up i'm not sure if something was released from him as well whether that could have been temporarily you know dougie being created or something as a result of him having the ring inside of him maybe that's something that allowed him to be created like a gold object somehow tied to that but he doesn't seem to be scared of that place initially, does he? No. Um, and maybe that's that whole idea that, you know, it's in our house now. It's something to do with something reaching into that kind of world. And it does make you wonder about this idea of it being a like an alternate reality or a different dimension. Because I think that's always been the funny thing about the lodgers. They are still accessible from Earth. Whereas the black and white bit which we don't think is a black or white lodge we think it's something neutral or, or somehow an intermediate state um it's interesting that that one could actually be in a alternate dimension you can see that being a place where the giant and senorita dido are watching over things mm. and that would also explain you know why briggs is potentially safer there maybe he found a way during his time hopping to get there it also ties into the fact that they are looking at events such as the um, nuclear explosion from a slightly skewed temporal perspective as well. Um, that that might explain why Major Briggs is able to move around. And obviously with his head floating off, it's a bit like the woodsman who was in the prison cell, a couple of rooms along from the woodsman. But also when we last saw Briggs's head floating away, that was when Cooper saw it, hmm. when he was in the well, uh, exiting the purple spaceship with Nido and he saw it float past and said Blue Rose. Yeah. And then Bill also says that there were so many other people there and whether these were the people who were looking for Briggs, which is why he wanted to leave and go to another location or not. And he describes, it, it's not entirely clear what happened, that he, he says that they grabbed him and wanted to know what his wife's name was. And then somehow Ruth got killed, but it doesn't seem entirely clear who by yeah. or how. But he, he knows it's not Briggs. Yeah. So Briggs was, I suppose, trying to get an exit out of there as quickly as possible because he yeah. knew that somebody or something was after him. Yeah. And then he just describes the fact that Ruth was dead and it was horrible and he held her and then he woke up in his own home. So whether this means that at that point he got I don't know, possessed by a spirit and therefore doesn't remember the time in between. Um, it's not entirely clear. But evidently, he doesn't necessarily think that the place itself was evil because when he describes Briggs floating up and his head disappearing, he describes it as beautiful. Yeah, which is a feeling that everyone gets when they're watching those scenes in, yeah. uh, in that room as well. Yeah, so Briggs seems to have had these new coordinates. Ruth had them written on her hand, which is why it's interesting that her body has disappeared um, because she had the coordinates on her. And who else would have had the coordinates? Well, Bill must have seen them. And we presume that Bill's 
secretary betty must have had them because that's who mr c and the gang seem to be looking for the information from and, and ray in particular seems to have got the information so whether these coordinates are another entrance to another lodge the same lodge a different place but it seems to be what everyone is is trying to find at the moment so who do you think the people are who seem to be saying you know tell me who your wife is etc the very beginning of that speech that uh, Hastings says well I don't know I mean could it could it be the woodsmen are they some kind of foot soldiers who are out doing things is that why one of them was hanging around Hastings in prison yeah. and hanging around Briggs's body asking got a wife <laughs> <laughs> got a wife <laughs> got a wife i don't know maybe it's just very... misheard <laughs> <laughs> it's just very bizarre um but it also makes me think of that bit in uh, is it part two when mr c is talking to the person who he thinks may or may not be jeffrey it's getting really annoying saying may or may not be jeffrey we don't know who it is yeah okay it could be windham um it could be mike it could be anyone it could be waldo could uh, be me. <laughs> <laughs> um it's just really odd because he did say you met with major briggs yeah. And so initially we thought that might have been the meeting that Doppelkoop had with Briggs when he got out of the Red Room at the end of season two. But it also implies, at least from the way it's said, that that meeting may have been much more recent. Mm. You know, the uh, the bit where he says, oh, you met with Major Briggs and then Mr. C is like, oh, how do you know? Which means that maybe he was there in that setting. Maybe he saw Briggs and maybe this whole idea of it's in our house now is Mr. C being able to find where that place was. Hmm. Um, certainly when he was inhabited by Bob, he was potentially, you know, he was he was last seen at some point spewing out of the mother creature. And so we do wonder if maybe he's trying to find a way back in some kind of way and maybe he managed to find a way there, but he couldn't find mother there. But I do get the impression that with some of these things coming out like Hastings very explicitly describing what he sees you know they are making it at least possible to start to interpret certain things that we are seeing in some of the extra extra dimensional aspects of the world of Twin Peaks. So then we're back at the Great Northern uh, it's still humming for some reason uh, Ben and Beverly are still trying to figure out where the sound is coming from in their office uh, it seems a bit louder but it's the same kind of tone and she's still trying to flirt with him. He kind of rebuffs her advances a little bit and says, oh, I can't do this. I don't know why. And she says, oh, you're a good man, which seems to bring him a bit of peace because that's clearly what he's been trying to be for a really long time because it's the opposite of what he used to be. Uh, so we don't really know what this humming is yet. There's, But there's an awful lot of stuff in this episode about sounds about tones about frequencies listen to the sounds yeah yeah so whether this is the sound of, a, of something resonating with a particular frequency within the hotel within the walls uh i don't know but frequencies is something that we're gonna come back to in a bit as well yeah and i think it is almost making the great northern potentially the centerpiece of something that could be happening um a bit later on mm. um there's so much Twin Peaks stuff in this episode I think for all the complaints that it hasn't had much Twin Peaks you know, town in this season so far but we're halfway through and I think there's a huge amount going on um, at this point so yeah. 
I think it's only going to get more and more as other plot lines start to be either wrapped up or sort of migrated over here. And then to the Roadhouse, once again. And there are two acts playing at the Roadhouse. So the first one is some DJ guy. I don't, I don't Hudson Mohawk. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard of him. Uh, and then we get a conversation between um, two young women who are sitting at one of the booths, Chloe and... Ella. Ella, yeah. that's the one. It seems that c- certainly one, maybe both of them, are on that sparkle drug that's been going around Twin Peaks. Uh, one of them describes how she got fired from her waitressing job for turning up high and she can't really remember what was going on. Now she's got another waitressing job at a different place. And she's also got this weird rash that she can't stop scratching. It's interesting that that rash is on the left arm. Mm. You know, the left arm, it's its a bad arm in the world of Twin Peaks. <laughs> <laughs> it goes numb, it goes tingly, and uh, often it shrinks away and rings fall off it. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes people just cut it off. Exactly. And, yeah, they, they have a conversation which bizarrely involves a couple of very specifically black and white animals, a zebra and a penguin. Hmm. But I don't know what that was all about. I don't know if it's a code or if it's completely meaningless. I don't know. Um, But it is a bit strange. The other thing I did wonder when watching it again, do you think that they are the two 15-year-old prostitutes that Jean-Michel Renault is talking about? It could be, because they're hanging out in the roadhouse. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't sure, but I was like, "Eh, maybe, but I don't know. Yeah, I found it really hard to judge how old they were. Yeah. Um, but it is weird. It's reached that point where now, literally, it's like anything could be anyone right now. <laughs> and it's very, very strange. Mm. But then it ends, yeah, with um, Au Revoir Simone playing. Now, they played, what, back in part four? Mm. Seems an age ago. Yeah. Um, but they're wearing the same clothes. And I do wonder if, you know, time in Twin Peaks is very skewed, a bit strange, and... It looks like it could be the same gig that they're continuing. So how it all works is quite intriguing, actually. Mm. And also it's breaking that tradition of having a different band at the Roadhouse. We've already had episodes that don't end with a song at the Roadhouse. Now we've got ones where we've got the same band appearing again. So all bets are off. So... That's kind of the end of the recap of the episode. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, some of the things specifically that really came out of the Hastings scene. And specifically the strange website that is found uh, in the real world, which is searchforthezone.com. Yeah. So almost as soon as the episode aired, people found out that this blog actually exists. And it looks magnificent. It's like a proper early days of the internet, geocities type monstrosity with little flashing words, things spinning around, an overly dark and complicated backdrop that means you can't read the words properly. (laughs) Including some coordinates. Yes. (laughs) Everything that people of a certain age will remember the internet being like back in the day, which is, it's got a lovely retro feel to it. Because you can imagine some people watching Twin Peaks now, they will not remember an internet that looked like that. So, for example, some of the things at the very top of the page, there are like these little, almost like badges that they've put on them. And one of them is called Campaign Against Frames. And I remember 
back in, I don't know, 2001 or something like that, I was trying to learn HTML stuff and I, I learned how to put frames into a web page. <laughs> and people were like, no, you shouldn't put frames in, doesn't like on web browsers. That's why there was a campaign against them. There was, there was a campaign against them. But it just looks, it, it, it looks wonderful. And as part of this site, some of the blog posts that get referred to in the show don't exist because if you click through to the link that says um, read other blog posts, you get a page of kind of crazy static and music and stuff like that. But by and large, the, the main page of this site is basically saying, oh, this is my blog about searching for, you know, other dimensions and um, the afterlife and time travel and stuff like that. And it's got some WAV files on it, which if you play, they sound like the kind of static sounds that you get when the woodsmen are nearby. Yeah, I think the second one especially is the is the kind of God of Light soundtrack yeah. that plays. Yeah. Yeah. And at the bottom, um, there are some links to other sites, all of which seem to be actual genuine third party sites that they've decided that they're going to link to for various reasons. There's the convenience store video. Yes, yes. If you click on the link for, what is it? It's down the bottom. Underneath a little button at the bottom that says Yahoo pick of the week, there are some incredibly hard to see coordinates because they're black on a dark blue background. But if you click on them, you get a fuzzy uh, footage of the convenience store um, as it looked in part eight. Yeah. And there's, as I said, there's a number of uh, links to third-party sites on here. Some of them are links to um, sites about the fiction of Heinlein, Robert Heinlein. So he was like a big science fiction author, sort of one of the big three science fiction authors around, um, along with, I think, Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov. And yeah, so his one of his claims to fame, which is kind of interesting, is that he invented the term Waldo. Um, so those are these so I think it came from one of his short stories but it's actually like a um, one of those mechanical arm like machines almost like you know the alien power loader and things like that it revolves around a story about somebody who I think doesn't have much strength or something and they build a machine this big kind of mechanical thing that they're able to control and do the jobs for them and it's interesting they do that because obviously Waldo appears as the bird Mm. And also, uh, I suppose, to an extent, in contraction form, uh, Wally Brando as well. Mm. And also, it specifically refers to Bill Hastings having read and enjoyed the book Orphans of the Sky when he was a child. And Orphans of the Sky is essentially a book about a generation ship, uh, which is a spaceship that is intended to go on such a long journey that multiple generations of people will live and die within the ship before the journey reaches its end. And on this ship, it's been going for such a long time that people have forgotten that it is, in fact, going somewhere. Um, they've interpreted the, the whole idea of, of the ship being on a journey as being metaphorical. And they've kind of developed their own religions, their own society inside of it. And they think that the spaceship is the universe. They don't think there's anything outside of it. And that some of the uh, kind of scientific and engineering processes that they have to do on the ship are actually some kind of devotional worship or something like that. Um, it's it's like one of those proper kind of early SF crazy novels. I think there's a, a like a race of mutant people in it at some point, and there's some guy with two heads that have two different personalities. So I quite like the fact that there's this whole kind of 
doppel duality thing going on in that book. It's odd that it really specifically refers to that book as well as to Heinlein in general. Now the other links on this website are to um, articles about string theory, multiple dimensions, things like that. It's called Reading List. It's down at the bottom. I'm not going to go into all of them because there's quite a few on there. Interestingly, some of them went down overnight. I don't know if it's just because of the increased traffic or people didn't want their stuff put on there or what it was. But some of the blogs that you could click through and read last night, if you now go there, the website that it's linking to doesn't exist. They might come back again, we don't know. Yeah. yeah. But for the most part, I think we've been able to find the articles that it refers to on other sites reproduced or referred to in other ways. And there are some... Well, there are four particular ones that I found really interesting. Uh, two of them are slightly more rational. Two of them are slightly more, a little bit, maybe a little bit bonkers. Um, but they all seem to have interesting links to the world of Twin Peaks. So the first one is an article called Parallel Universe and Density Shifting. And this is from something called Grant Chronicles, uh, which just seems to be some kind of blog about... Um, it, alternate physics and mystical stuff and things like that. Anyway, this article is basically putting forward the argument for the existence of five dimensions. So there's the four that we're aware of. There's the X, Y and Z axis in physical space and there's time. But this article argues for the existence of a fifth dimension, which is something along the lines of a vibrational frequency and that things can exist within a fifth dimension depending on the vibrational frequency that they have. And it refers to several things in here. First of all, it refers to the Philadelphia experiment, where it describes uh, the US military irradiating targets with subatomic particles. And this is a quote from the article. With a vibrational increased basic matter separated, allowing light to diffuse through, this ghost-like appearances of men trapped in the density shift and this made us think of the woodsman a bit and the way they kind of appear transparent because obviously if they were from the area of the trinity bomb going off were they irradiated is this something to do with them having some kind of increased vibrational frequency that allows light to pass through them uh, another quote from the article Ultimately, positional changes by the men exploring their new surroundings found a horrific result, solidification within solid objects, <laughs> which immediately made us think of Josie yeah. and the way that um, after she almost became frightened to death, uh, she ended up physically inside the draw pool on the nightstand next to the bed in the Great Northern. And this article then goes on to argue that this fifth dimensional space makes time travel possible and that time moves at a different rate within fifth dimensional space, uh, which would create some kind of time dilation effect, which again seems to be going around the woodsman. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of a strange article. It's quite long, uh, but it, it's worth reading to the extent that there are thematic links with some of the stuff that's going on in Twin Peaks. The second one is called Why Frequencies Are Key to Understanding Parallel Universes and Time. And this entire website has been taken offline. The whole WordPress thing has gone down. But if you Google for that exact phrase, you get two other websites that appear to have reproduced the entire article. So assuming that this is the correct article that we have, 
Essentially, it's a multiverse theory of other universes existing alongside our own, but vibrating at a different frequency, which is not a, an out there theory in, in contemporary physics at all. Uh, and it refers to several occasions in which LSD experiments were done to alter brain chemistry to allow the brain to tune into other wavelengths and become aware of other realities. And this made us think, first of all, of the designer drug Sparkle that is doing the rounds in Twin Peaks. And is this having some effect on people? Is this altering their brain chemistry and making them able to perceive other other existences, the lodges or whatever it is they may be? But also it made us think of what's happening to Jerry out in the woods, where he seems to be high and having some kind of lodgy experience <laughs> that goes beyond just having had a bit too too many drugs. The article also claims that time travel is made possible when moving through parallel universes and that it's possible to create quantum bridges between realities. So again, it's 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 a bit of a, an odd article, but it, it thematically has links to some of the stuff that's going on in Twin Peaks. And those quantum bridges could even be the things that might be forming when the bomb goes off, mm. linking you know our world with potentially the world of the giant and Senorita Dido, the purple world. Yeah, indeed, indeed. The third one is uh, phys.org, which is a website devoted to all things physics. Um, and this is, is essentially a, an article all about um, the theory of parallel universes. Um, and it's a completely science-driven article. Essentially, it, it runs through the basics of string theory the fact that string theory requires there to be at least 10 physical dimensions but because we're only able to perceive four that must mean dimensions five through ten are hidden in some way and that one theory is that they are in fact too small to be perceived um there's this uh famous um example that was given um it's not in this particular blog post but you can find it easily um it, it's a very famous kind of explanation of, of an element of string theory given by Professor Brian Green about an ant on a garden hose and that if you think of a garden hose and you think about looking at a garden hose from, from a huge distance the garden hose would appear to just be a, a line and that it would exist in one dimension that you can either go up or down the line but if you're very very small yourself like an ant and you're on the surface of the garden hose you're able to perceive that not only does the surface of the garden hose go up and down in one dimension, but that it also curves around and has a second dimension, which is around the circumference, and you can move around the circumference of the garden hose. And so it's essentially saying that um, our dimensions 5 through 10, or 5 through 11, if you go for the 11 dimension theory, are they incredibly small and curled up? and imperceptible to us in some way um, but if you were on the scale of an ant compared to these dimensions you would be able to perceive them so anyway this this article then goes on to talk about the fact that there are physicists who are looking for signatures of collisions between our universe and other universes in cosmic microwave background and this made us think about all the stuff with project, project blue book about the listening post, about where they were trying to get radio frequencies um, and, you know, potentially does the military or the, or the FBI 
know something. And on that note, I mean, going back to the episode, so do you think that when Major Briggs receives the message, which he delivers to Cooper, the one saying Cooper, 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 was it actually delivered by him anyway? It could so, what, be. so when he's actually saying that and he's floating up, is he sending that message back in time, in some way, to a signal that is picked up by the listening post when he himself is listening to it? Yeah, it could be. It could be that he sent the message to himself. And I can't remember if we mentioned it earlier, but there's that other message that was in that funny metal rod, which said, you know, Cooper, Cooper, and then a bit of another Cooper. And it was a, mm. it was a version of the message that Briggs got when he was at the listening post that he thought was coming from a message from the woods, which may have been coming from the White Lodge. And it was asking him to get in touch with uh, Cooper, the one where the log lady comes to him and says, you know, you have to deliver the message. Yeah. Um, so that that reappearing is kind of interesting. Um, I mean, obviously, it's two Coopers and then Hawk says, sorry. Yeah, he says there's two Coopers um, yeah. when he sees the two Coopers. But also there's that other half of another Cooper, which is not the complete message. So do you think there's something going on with that? Well, is, is it is it simply a kind of jokey reference to the fact that Dougie was only ever half a Coop? Yeah, could or, be. Yeah. Or a purr short of a Cooper? <laughs> <laughs> is that a new phrase? That dude is a purr short of a Cooper. Um, yeah, it could be. I mean, it's, it's clearly a callback to the message, but I like the idea that it's severed in a very um, specific way. But going back to what you were saying um, earlier, you know, you're also talking about the fact that the message involving Jack Rabbit's palace was deliberately aimed at Bobby. So do you think that this message was deliberately aimed at Hawk in some way? Well, because he's already latching on to the, the possibility that the Cooper who came out of the lodge is not the real Cooper yeah. and that there yeah. are two Coopers and the idea of the shadow self. It could be, because he knew that Hawk would be one of the people who, who came to collect the message. And maybe this just confirms it to Hawk, so he knows um, what's going on. But it's also intriguing as to why uh, Frank has to go now. Yeah, because I do wonder if Briggs knew that it would be that Sheriff Truman. Yeah, it's very odd, because if he knew it was going to be that Truman, that opens up a complete can of worms about how this is all working. <laughs> I mean, you could almost argue that he may have known it would have been Harry thinking it would have been his friend yeah. going to get him out. Um, but also it's interesting that Betty says, I wasn't sure it was going to be you. Or I didn't know it would be you, Truman, rather than you know, Harry Truman. Um, so that's kind of funky. And this is probably complete wish fulfillment here. But if there are elements of the message that were intended for Bobby and Hawk to understand... What if there is an element of the message that was intended for Harry to understand, but he's not there, and that therefore, for some reason, they actually need to go and speak to him, or or just hear him on the phone, or any kind of cameo whatsoever. I'm reaching for any kind of cameo whatsoever at this point. You know what? I think that's a completely bonkers idea, but it just might happen. And the final link on the blog post that I want to talk about, which is another one where the page that it links to has gone, it's the one to Epoch Times, but what was there, if you look at the description in the URL, what was there was a video by a physicist named Dr. Michio Kaku, apologies if I've pronounced that terribly, he's a very famous physicist where he's talking about deja vu, 
And basically it's addressing the question of, the, or the theory of, is deja vu caused by the existence of multiple universes? And are you experience something that you've experienced in another universe or something? And it, it covers the fact that, you know, in theoretical physics, there's this theory that you do have uh, multiple universes that are vibrating at different frequencies. And he gives this um, famous example that has been given before about uh, a radio in your living room tuning into a particular station. So if you've got your radio tuned to uh, BBC, there are radio waves at other frequencies moving through your living room for other radio channels, but you can't hear them because your radio is not tuned into them. And th this acts as a metaphor for the idea that we perceive um, the universe that we are able to perceive with the information that we are able to absorb and that in time universes that vibrate differently decouple from one another and that you can no longer perceive the other universes that have decoupled from ours because they're vibrating at a different frequency. I'm, I can't pretend to actually understand any of these physics. It's all completely beyond me. It's really fascinating to read all this stuff. I'd, I'd heard stuff about the ant and the hosepipe before um, but it's it's one of those things where you could you could read and read and read and read and still not understand a thing but it, it's fascinating but the whole point of this video and why I wanted to bring it up is the deja vu angle where he's basically saying that actually deja vu is caused by fragments of memories that are stored in the brain and when we experience something that is reminiscent of one of these fragments of memories it also triggers something from the memory which causes the feeling of us feeling like we've experienced it before but actually what we are feeling is the fragment of the memory that we have that is similar in some way and this is what's happened to Dougie to Dougie Coop because in his current state he's obviously got Cooper's memories but they're buried in there somewhere and all these things like the coffee the police badges the case files the red shoes, the American flag, all of these things are causing some kind of deja vu in him. And the question is, at what point is something going to break down whatever mental barrier is in there and actually enable him to access his memories again? So I found it kind of interesting that out of all of these links that they put on there to all of these blog posts, they put a link to a video about deja vu. So one last thing to do with the Hastings situation. Um, so what's going on with the dates that we're seeing? So we've been in a complete tiz over this for the last <laughs> 24 hours and we're still not completely sure what's going on. Yeah, so the Sheriff's Department in Twin Peaks, it appears to be the 29th of September because the 1st of October is in two days and 2nd of October is the day after. So it must be the 29th of September. Um, in the stuff going on in Buckhorn, at one point, it's referred to the fact that the blog was last updated by Bill a week ago or two weeks ago or something like that. And if you go to the blog, it says last updated November 2015, which initially threw everyone thinking that that meant that what was happening in Buckhorn was in 2015. But actually, um, there is a guest book on the site and ever since the episode aired there have been some slightly amusing guest book entries that have been put on there by fans just going onto the site 
but the pre-existing Gesbrick entries, which are the ones that are presumably meant to be canonical in some way. Uh, there is one from September 2015 saying something about, oh, it was a great video that you put up or something like that. And then another one from November 2015 saying, where are you guys? Which implies that it just hadn't been updated for a while and people within their circle couldn't get in touch with them. So I think that the last updated November 2015, that that is actually been triggered by the guest book entry. Yeah. And that that meant that the actual update happened a couple of days in the run up to the previous guest book entry, which was the 8th of September which must have been whatever they put online before everything happened and Ruth got killed and Bill got arrested, which would put that in late September. Now, at one point, he's given six photographs and he's asked to circle which one was the major that he met. Can I side note that? Yeah. I don't know, but I'm pretty certain that in the top row of faces, the middle one is Dwayne Dunham, who's the editor. Uh, a very young version. I don't know, but it's weird. I remember his face because he's on a couple of the Twin Peaks documentaries, which are extra things on um, a lot of the DVDs. And I'm pretty certain that he is. But if anyone does know who it is, and it is him, um, yeah, let us know. <laughs> I'm very confused, but I saw that and I was like, is that him? It's a weird thing after all, and you spot things like that. But uh, yeah, that's what we're going with. <laughs> Carry on. So he circles Major Briggs. And he signs and dates it. And at first it looks like he's written 9.20, which would make it the 20th of September. And that does fit with the two weeks. Yeah. But then some people have said, oh, actually, there's another line that goes down inside the next picture along. And you can't see it very well, but makes it a 9, which would make it 9.29. But the loop of the second 9 looks nothing like the loop on the first 9. And people do their nine loops usually in the same way. Yeah. So I'm I'm not entirely convinced either way. It could be the 20th or it could be the 29th. And then also he seems to say something while he's signing it, which could be 29th or it could be 20th and he kind of whimpers at the end because he's whimpering a lot at that particular point. Fantastic performance though. Is is, is a fantastic performance. <laughs> it's a proper... St- scene stealing episode stealing performance from Matthew Lillard so I I don't know it could be the 20th which would place it before what's going on in Twin Peaks or it could be the 29th which places it at exactly the same time as what's going on in Twin Peaks unless it's a different year who knows that's possible and actually what's annoying is that the way we're watching it on now TV we don't have subtitles on it Mm. so maybe this has all been resolved by the fact that when he whimpers something about the date it is already known. <laughs> so we're going with, uh, it could be the 20th or the 29th of September, <laughs> or it could be none of those things, or, yeah, um, they could be two completely different programmes. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a couple of cool things on the guest book of some of the entries that are on there. There's one from November 2010 from somebody called Doris, and the only Doris we know is uh, the new Sheriff Truman, the wife. But it could just be another one. We, we've, already, we've already been fooled by the whole Betty situation, <laughs> so I'm not necessarily going to say this is Doris. Um, there's one from January 2015 by someone calling themselves Mary Susan, but that's not their real name. He says, my grandmother remembers this, but it's not clear what the this is that they're talking about. 
And then there's one in March 2014. This is chemicals that change the brain, which seems to be referring to drugs again. And also says Betty is so cool, which implies that Betty was one of the gang. If they'd met Betty along with meeting everyone else in this little circle. But I wonder if that thing about the chemicals refers to the haloperidol that mm. uh, Philip Gerard takes in order to suppress the emergence of uh, Mike. It could be. Could because, be. you know, without chemicals, he points. Mm. And I wonder if uh, something's going on. I do wonder if this entire website is the construct of Mark Frost here, who's had a chance to insert a heavy dose of secret history <laughs> into the world of this episode. Um, it's actually quite a nice, a nice little viral um, sort of marketing that's gone along with it, because it's so much fun to click around and read this stuff. And again, it could be full of red herrings, but it's clearly part of a very well orchestrated and very elaborate architecture which is building behind the Twin Peaks mythology in the return yeah I I do wonder what it must have been like for some of those people to suddenly find that their websites were going from you know one hit a month to suddenly thousands of people going on in a single night I do wonder why why some of them have been taken down if they just didn't want the traffic or or if their hosts like didn't tolerate it <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's good that so far we've been able to find things elsewhere because it seems like they've picked these you know blog posts of varying uh veracity for, for a very specific reason um they're a fascinating read if you've got a few spare hours <laughs> and you're not listening to a billion twin peaks podcasts <laughs> like we are So that's it for part nine of Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee. We'd like to thank you for sticking with us. Mm. Yes, it's been a really interesting episode. After part seven was so packed with plot and developments and lots of Twin Peaks stuff. And then part eight was very much its own thing. It now seems like back in part nine again, we've jumped straight back into the plot actually moving really quickly. I know the stuff with Dougie still isn't moving, but everything else, all of the plot strands seem to be coming together and it feels like everyone's going to be back in Twin Peaks sooner rather than later. And also, you know, I don't know where the series is going on a week-to-week basis, but I think given that we had that little snippet of Ray and Mr. C at the beginning of Part 8, and we've had another one of those now, I do wonder how the Mr. C storyline is actually going to continue in the next part i still haven't been able to read how that thing is going Um, i know we spoke about it right at the beginning of the episode but what's your feeling about that whole thing well i'm getting the vibe that bob is gone and he's now bobless and yet is still continuing on whatever the mission was that he had before one thing i'm curious about is to why he hasn't decided to just go and kill dougie himself because now now that we seem to be certain that he's the one instructing Mr. Todd to have Dougie killed, um, none of the attempts have worked out so far. Mm. Why isn't he more concerned? Or is there another reason why he can't go near Dougie Coop himself? Would something happen if they actually came together, I wonder? Uh, yeah, so maybe they... This goes back to that theory that's going around that they have to somehow merge or interact in some way to do something funky. 
um, as a means to get good coop and doppel coop back into full coop. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of an interesting idea because it really could mean that there's some, you know, extra dimensional restraining order <laughs> that has to keep them a certain distance away from each other, uh, which is kind of funky. Yeah, and we'd like to thank you for listening and continuing to tweet us your comments about the episodes we're putting out. Um, it's really fun to interact with people and talk to everyone. Um, please share and retweet our episodes. It helps us get the word out. Um, if you have a minute, please subscribe to us um, on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn or however you get your podcasts. And if you have a second, please give us a rating uh, and review on any of those places, preferably a nice five-star one. <laughs> and yeah, you can follow us uh, on Twitter at TFCAA. You can like and follow us on Facebook, uh, on our Facebook page, which is Time for Cakes and Ale. And also you can visit our website, www.timeforcakesandale.com. Yes, where it does not look like a late 90s Geocities monstrosity. <laughs> but maybe it should. Maybe, maybe it should. Maybe we give it a makeover or make under. <laughs> so yeah, thank you for that. And we will see you again next week for part 10. Yeah. Goodbye. Goodbye.